0: Hello and welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday Interview. I'm your host Tim Miller. I have the great Scott Galloway, Prof. G, with me. Been wanting to do this one for a long time. He's the only guy that, on podcasts, I listen to him at 1.0 speed because he talks so fast. Um, because he has so much in that brain, and we just cover the gamut. This could have been three hours talking about higher education, AI, technology, TikTok, a little politics. You're really going to enjoy it. Uh, he's the host. If you don't know him, he's the host of the Pivot podcast with Kara Swisher. He has his own podcast, the Prof G Pod. It's more about tech and kind of business world stuff. And he's an author, investor. One of his big things right now is advocacy for uh, young men that are being left behind on like a range of issues, whether it's test scores or employability. He has super interesting thoughts on that. Stick around for Prof G. We will be back on Wednesday. I think JVL will be back. I think we'll have the whole gang back for you on Wednesday, and you know you're going to like that one. So, up next, Scott Galloway. First, our friends at Acid Tongue. And that's Acid Tongue, not Acetone. To the gentleman on Threads that I'd question about that, they have a new EP out. Check them out. We'll see you soon. Yeah. Welcome to the Bulwarks Next Level Sunday interview. I'm your host, Tim Miller. I'm here with the great Prof. G, Scott Galloway. He's the host of The Pivot Pod with Kara Swisher and The Prof. G Pod, author of Adrift America. He's on a bunch of boards. He's an investor. He is a public thought leader on tech and business and parenting and politics, and whatever Kara Swisher is interested in talking about each week. First question for you is how many hours are there in a day on your planet? Cause you seem to have a lot happening.
1: Oh, uh, first off, good to be with you, Tim. I, I'm boasting it. I get invited on a lot of podcasts and I was like, oh, Bulwark, I, li- I like those guys. So thanks for having me on. You know what? Uh, people think I work a lot harder than I do. Greatness is in the agency of others. People think when they see my No Mercy, No Malice newsletter or they hear my pods, they think it's me in my basement just working around the clock. Prop G Media is 12 people uh, I've been fortunate enough where I've started enough companies where I have sort of a go-to group of people uh, where we can kind of finish each other's sentences. But I work 40 to 50 hours a week, maybe, maybe. And I used to work, my guess is, Tim, you're at that age where you're trying to, you know, kill it and establish economic security, which probably means you're working a lot more than that. I don't work that hard. I used to work very, very hard, but no, I don't, I don't work nearly as hard as, as you would believe.
0: Well, that's impressive. Um, and I like how you got the newsletter drop in there, too. You know, I gave there that go. long list and I still <laughs> forgot something. Um, okay, well, I want to start. I'm sure there's some people like me. Our producer, Jonathan, is just talking about, yeah, you know, I think he's a stalker of yours and knows your whole life story. But I don't think that'll be true for everybody that uh, <laughs> listens to The Bulwark. Um, and so I just want to start with that. Like, for me, I had no idea who you were or anything about you. And then all of a sudden you were like ubiquitous in my life. I'm not really sure how that happened. That kind of is a, I think is a trait of our modern internet culture in some ways. So why don't you give folks just like a little backstory before we kind of can run through a bunch of topics?
1: Uh, sure. So uh, raised by a single mother who lived and died a secretary, the Generosity and vision of California taxpayers and the Reedus University of California saved my ass. I got to go to UCLA when it was $400 a quarter and had a 76% admissions rate. I got a 2.27 GPA. And with that, Berkeley decided to let me in for graduate school. <laughs> I started a strategy firm in my second year of business school called Profit. That's not It'd be
0: nice to be a boomer. Uh, you know?
1: Boss, wh- what you just said is so true, and I'm, I'm very aware of it. I really am. It's easy to credit your grit and your character for your success. I had gale force fucking winds in my back and I'm very cognizant of that. To be born a white heterosexual male in California in the mid 60s was to literally hit the fucking lottery. And until the age of 40, my narrative was, look at me, I overcame all these obstacles, you know, check my shit out. And then as I got older, I realized I really did. Maybe I was in the 99.9th percentile of luck, but I was in the 99th and I, so I, I do recognize that. The, uh, started a strategy firm, uh, sold that, uh, then started an e-commerce company called Red Envelope. That went public in two thousand and two, and then I, at a young age was blessed with like, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? What I thought was some economic security, although I lost it again, and then made it back, and then lost it again. But um, I decided I wanted to teach, so I joined the faculty at NYU, where I've been for a good twenty years now, and started a company called L two, a business intelligence firm. Started coaching or counseling or advising hedge funds and VCs to co-invest. That's where I've kind of made real money. And now I'm kind of trying to think about what I want to do the next 20 years. And I want to, you know, I'm very focused on issues around teen depression and struggling young men and just, you know, lead a really rewarding life, have a wonderful family, get to do wonderful things, make good money. And I'm focused on things I'm really, really interested in.
0: So why why the media Pivot, that pun was unintended there. Mm-hmm. Like, you could do, you could not do this, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, you know, I, it seems like you, you could go on more vacations or, mm-hmm. you know, on more like there are other things that you could be doing. Like, is it, is it the passion? Is it that you like the feedback? Is it that you feel like you can make a difference? Like, what, what is it? What was the motivation for the, the, you know, going all in on doing media stuff?
1: Uh, some of it's narcissism. I get a huge <laughs> amount of reward hearing my own voice and seeing my face on TV it's It's very rewarding to me. Um,
0: yeah, same, hard same.
1: it's it's the truth. Uh, it's rewarding for me. Uh, I, I'm desperate for other people's affirmation. People seem especially impressed. When you're in the media, I'm good at it. I make a lot of money doing it. I'd like to think that I can have real reach and influence. If I can write something to move somebody and then they hear a podcast, you really can I don't know if you found this, Tim, but the medium really is the message. If if a bike messenger mid-biking, you know, out in the street, high-fives me, I know that he or she has seen a video. If someone writes me this intense, long email about their struggles with their kids, I know they've read a book or one of my newsletters. If someone comes up to me at a restaurant and just starts talking to me and I think, do I know this person? Because they are so familiar and so friendly, it's from the podcast. Because there's something about the intimacy you establish with someone when, when they not only hear your voice and you're talking to them, but when you're physically in their ears while they're doing something intimate, they're walking, they're walking their dog, they're working out, they're listening to it with their son. And that quite frankly, other than the, the ego and the money is the most rewarding thing. Because I feel as if people are so nice to me, people come up to me, they're friendly, they wanna know me, they're complimentary and it's, for someone like me who never had that type of reward, it's just, I gotta be honest, it's just hugely rewarding. And I like, you know, yeah, I'd like to think I'm making a difference or staying relevant, but yeah, it's, um, uh, the the media is a ton of fun. I don't do, not do i spent a lot of time trying to do TV. I'm zero for five on TV shows. I've had five TV shows. They've all either gotten canceled before or soon after they started. So I finally figured out I had a face for podcasting. But I love writing, uh, love podcasting, and love speaking. I make the majority of my living now, actually, or my current income from speaking gigs.
0: I do um, feel that way about folks coming up to me, and I also love it and find it rewarding. I th- that when people come up and want to talk to me, I'm generally like, "This is great." I yeah, got, you know, cause especially the podcast, because you feel you can feel that you're you're providing them something, whether it's entertainment or perspective or comfort, whatever it is, and. Um, you know, a lot of times people are shy and are like, "Oh, I don't want to bother you." And I'm like, "I am not famous enough for you to oh, not, not want to bother, me. Like, bother me." Oh, not at all. Bother me. You <laughs> bother me. Yeah. Like I'm sure Timothy Chalamet doesn't want you to bother him yeah. at a restaurant, but yeah, bother uh, me. No problem. So, no
1: problem. No anyway, problem.
0: Let's. Uh, all right. Now that we've. Uh, Discussed our egomania. So let's, let's talk about some other mean egomaniacs and go through some topics. Sure. I had to start with, for you with the Andreessen Techno-Optimist Manifesto. Mm-hmm. And for people that aren't familiar, I just want to read one section of it. But uh, Mark Andreessen is a uh, big VC guy, among many other things. I had a weird breakfast with him once. Amazingly smart guy. And maybe a elevator pitch of techno-optimism. I probably would be a techno-optimist. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. But the manifesto includes some very deep, weird tech bro kind of resentments about the world, including this one passage I want to read you uh, under the title Enemies. Uh, Our present society has been subjected to a mass demoralization campaign for six decades against technology and against life under varying names like existential risk, sustainability, ESG, sustainable development goals, social responsibility, stakeholder capitalism, precautionary principle, trust and safety, tech ethics, risk management, degrowth and the limits of growth. I just, I kind of want to just put a quarter in the machine and get your reaction to the, the manifesto in that section in particular.
1: When he goes on to talk about the kind of the elite who suppress us and call on their credentials to, to who think they're superior to us, I thought, is he describing himself? Look,
0: I've just really like i also pulled that section, so I'm glad you pointed to it. Our enemy is the ivory tower, the know-it-all credentialed expert worldview, luxury beliefs, social engineering. It's like who does who is this describing? Well, You're talking not about boss? Mark Andreessen
1: and his friends. Look, like technology. I think that Mark Andreessen deserves to be a billionaire. I think that every year that technology massively improves their product and they lower the price. I think it's just been amazing. You wouldn't press a button and want big tech to go away. Maybe maybe Meta, but the rest of it we'd keep. The the thing that I would push back on, Mark, I don't know the guy, uh, and he could arguably say I did invent the internet. <laughs> he, he did what Al Gore says he did. The, the thing that bothers me about the kind of tech bro culture, and I was part of it, uh, kind of coming a professional age in 90 San Francisco, is that if you look at who are the most loyal Americans, it's veterans, the people who have invested the most in America. I would argue the most fortunate in our society are the least patriotic, and that is... None of these guys want to acknowledge that if you look at a map and you look at companies worth more than ten billion dollars, they're littered up and down the West Coast of North America. And start in San Diego, you know, you have uh, you have oh. biotech firms, Qualcomm. You head up towards LA, you get SpaceX, you get Snap. You keep going north, you get Salesforce, uh, Meta, Google. Keep going north, Amazon. Microsoft, I mean, they're just literally littered up and down the Western seaboard. And then you get to the Canadian border and it stops until you get to Lululemon in Vancouver. You get to San Diego and it stops until you go another 5,000 kilometers until you get to Mercado Libre. And what I find just so upsetting is that these individuals don't, they shitpost America. They find that our institutions and these educational, you know, the government and these educational institutions are the problem when the reality is Every large company of technology was built off the backs of the greatest VC in history. That's the US government and the limited partners, the investors who are the American middle class. I don't care if you're getting 450 million in subsidies for EVs, Tesla, and charging subsidies, Tesla again, or GPS, or DARPA, all of these companies have built a thick, remarkable layer of innovation on top of huge infrastructure investments that have not been made anywhere else. A tax policy, an economic policy, massive amounts of graduates from Carnegie Mellon to Berkeley to Stanford to UW that, that just absolutely are the coal in the furnace of their innovation. And yet the moment they get their billions, they want out and they start shitposting America. I find it techno-narcissism, where they somehow decide after being the most fortunate people in history that somehow they're victims and they want out. It strikes me as just so tone deaf. You know, it's like take Meghan and Harry times a million that don't (laughs) recognize their blessings and want to start shitposting their family. It's just fucking obnoxious. And this, this notion that somehow they're victims. Other than thank you, I don't understand what on earth. Or thank you, and I feel grateful, and I'm focused on how to give back. Now, I don't think there is any appropriate response. I just, and there are some people like that. I think Mark Benioff is demonstrates a lot of grace. I think a guy like Satya Nadella, who's constantly trying to keep the drawbridge down for immigrants, you know, there are some people in tech who I think are do demonstrate some humility and grace. But the techno weird neo libertarian shit is just fucking obnoxious, and it's really disappointing.
0: Yeah. Those people, by the way, because I agree with you on Andreessen, he deserves his billions and the people that started these companies deserve it. I'm a capitalist. But I really hate the obnoxious complainers who are like the fifth employee at PayPal. <laughs> like congr- congrats. I yeah, had a man. biz dev
1: that's worth 700 million now.
0: Yeah, congrats. You were yeah. friends with Elon yeah. at Stanford or Peter Thiel or whoever, that's and right. now you're going to kind of complain about everything. Like that, this is what turns me into Bernie Sanders. Like my biggest tax policy shift was meeting these people, asking them for money for anti Trump stuff. And I was like, you people are turning me into Bernie Sanders just listening to your rants. Um, I will say this, about Andreessen. Like, one area where I do agree is I don't mind if these guys are saying, okay, hey, because of our experience and because I have my hands in all these different companies and and just this view of what's happening in the economy, like I have thoughts about how the government could make things more efficient mm-hmm. or, you know, or how we could streamline things or fix things or, or rate lift more boats or, you know, I, there are a lot of people in, in Silicon Valley to their credit that are trying to, how do we innovate in other parts of the country? So it's not just the West Coast, right? Like all of that is, it makes sense with, to me, uh, but it feels like we've tipped over from like, you know, we're trying to be technocrats and make government more efficient, which was kind of in vogue in the Obama years to now this like libertarian anti-woke weirdness.
1: Yeah, I just want out. And the thing that really bothers me and it's sort of the same flavor of a, you know, of a different confectionery is all of these people who leave California for Texas and Florida and then start shitposting San Francisco. Show me a VC who is shitposting San Francisco and I'll show you someone who's about to recognize a big capital gain and has decided he can no longer tolerate the unbearable living of a high-tax state and now loves Austin or Miami where he or she is about to sell billions and billions Worth of stock. I mean, it's like, boss, we're not stupid. It's your right to move to a low tax state and recognize the capital gain, but do you need to stick the middle finger up on the way out the door? It, I, I just find the whole thing very uh, kind of distasteful.
0: Um, a little bit of a subtext to the manifesto that's it's more substantive. I'm interested in your view on is, you know, the eight kind of coming AI, mm-hmm. and I think Andreessen in and others are. Wanting, obviously, the regulators and government to keep their hands off this and, you know, kind of let uh, creative destruction happen, uh, maybe in an apocalyptic sense here uh, when it comes to AI. So I'm just I'm wondering what you see from AI as opportunities and what you see from, you know, regulators as folks as the places where we really do need intervention to, you know, protect us from some of these dreamers and optimists.
1: I'm an AI optimist. I find all of the catastrophizing is a function of the same techno-narcissism, where people like to think that their technology is the singular point of leverage to save or destroy humanity. And I don't find it a productive conversation to say, I'm the father of AI, and now that my options are vested and I'm worth millions, I'm worried about it. It's like, well, okay, that's that's not helpful. And I generally think it's gonna be a positive. And my sense is if we figured out a way to handle bioweapons and nuclear weapons, we should be able to figure out a way to find this. And the notion that it's gonna become sentient, I'm not a philosopher, but I've never seen any evidence that any machine has intention or emotion, uh, that it'll create income inequality. I think that's true, but I think we have that same problem across all the technology, that it'll become a super weapon. I think there's probably some things there, but there are now weapons available where that can blind everyone on the field. There's lasers now that they shoot out one beam of light and it would blind everyone on the field. And everyone, including our adversaries have said, this is probably not a good idea. None of us are gonna manufacture this. We have largely put a lid on bioweapons. You know, we've taken nuclear weapons from zero to 50,000 back to 10,000. So I do think we've handled similar threats. I think it's gonna create more jobs than it destroys. The arc of every technology is there's job destruction in the short run. Automation did destroy some jobs on the factory floor, but we didn't envision heated seats or car stereos. The automobile industry now employs more people. I think the same thing will happen with AI. I think there's gonna be a ton of new applications for people with different skills. Hopefully this time we'll take some of those gains in productivity and shareholder value and use it for retraining and to help the people who are displaced, which we've done a really bad job with in terms of globalization or new tech formats, but I'm an AI optimist. I think the most exciting parts of AI are first and foremost healthcare. In the United States, we spend $13,000 per person for uh, lower life expectancy and higher infant mortality. The way you would describe healthcare in America is the way a lot of people describe San Francisco right now, expensive but bad. And so I think that pushing out using a series of smart cameras and smartphones, preventive health care, using AI, give them your grocery receipts, give them your sleep monitor, give them your, your credit card charges, your cable bill, and they're going to say... Okay, when you need to text us about the mole, I I think a good third of America is intimidated, underinsured, doesn't have a lot of confidence, and feels a lump in her breast and doesn't know what to do, and then it becomes metastatic breast cancer. Or has a kid with diabetes and the mother managing that kid's diabetes, and let's be honest, it's always the mother, spends five months of her year managing that kid's diabetes because of all the insurance, the breakage the specialization, the pharmacies, the needs for pre-approvals to get to a specialist. If we can give her two months back for self-care, care care for others, make money. I think there's just an enormous unlock around taking healthcare from a defensive disease-driven industry to an offensive healthcare-related industry using AI. And there's going to be niche applications everywhere for AI. I think it's very exciting. I don't think AI is going to take your job. I think someone who understands AI is going to take your job. So no matter what job you're in, start experimenting with AI. And you know, just as I, I'm sure I, well, I would guess, like, like me, you're experimenting with, all right, let's do this podcast in Korean using an AI and see if there's a market for property or the bulwark in Korean, whatever it might be. The biggest fear I have about AI, and it's something I'm focused on, is loneliness. And that is, I see a lot of men sequestering from society and having a reasonable facsimile of relationships. They think I'm learning when I'm on Reddit, or I am investing when I'm on Robin Hood, or I don't want to take the risks of approaching a strange woman for potential romantic or sexual relationships, so I'm gonna have a reasonable facsimile of sex on you porn. There's now talk, uh, the searches for AI girlfriend have exploded. They think the sex bot industry, essentially sex dolls, is gonna be bigger than the motion picture box office domestic receipts in about five or seven years. And I'm worried we're just creating a generation of men for a lot of reasons will not wanna engage in the risks and the rejection and the effort of establishing real relationships there's a reason romantic comedies are two hours, not 20 minutes, because there's obstacles. They're hard. I've been an entrepreneur and single most of my life, so I've endured a lot of rejection. And that rejection and learning from it and overcoming it is key to my success. And I worry that a lot of young men are being tempted with algorithmically driven substitutes, whether it's porn or invest, you know, or, or you think you have friends, but you're not really experiencing friendship on Discord you get some sort of dope hit either from vaping in your basement or playing video games instead of actual real play or real sports. And I worry that we're raising a generation of men who are just gonna become totally unviable. And that is they fall out of practice. They never develop the skills, the mojo, the economic viability to be attractive mates. They become resentful, they become misogynist, they become more prone to nationalistic behavior, they become suicidal. Men are now committing suicide at a four to one rate, men to women. It used to be three to one, now it's up to four to one. And I worry that we're leaving an entire generation of men behind because these algorithms and these companies want to convince you that, oh, you, you don't need to actually work. You can trade, you know, uh, Cumrocket or you can trade Solana. That's actual learning. I would not have gone on campus and graduated from UCLA, had the prospect of potentially meeting someone and having sex with them and establishing a romantic relationship, if that wasn't part of the reason to engage in college. I would not have endured the humiliation of approaching a strange person in a bar. I would not have reached out to mentors. I would have not have I would have not have sent cold emails to potential funders, potential business partners, had I had some of the reasonable facsimiles of those things that are available now. And I think it's very tempting for men. And women do a much better job of maintaining relationships and social. Norms when they don't have a romantic relationship. They generally have a broader selection set of friends, they're more social, they get out more. And without the prospect of a romantic or a sexual relationship, men sequester from the majority of the relationships, they don't develop professional skills, they don't take care of themselves, and in some they become really shitty citizens. And I'm worried that AI is gonna take that and just put it on steroids, where we're gonna have a bunch of men having relationships with algorithms, and sex dolls, and they're just literally going to fall off the face of the planet, and we're we're going to lose them.
0: Yeah, I think that overlaps with a lot yeah. of the topics that I write about and think about in the political sphere, and, and a lot of potential threats and fears. Uh, you know, I mean, when you look at the rise of the radicalization of, you know, it's mostly young men. It's not even just young mm-hmm. white men anymore, but mostly young white men. You know, who are who are being attracted to, you know, these far right politicians like Trump, but even like the social media f- figures like Sneeko and right, like things like this, I like being attracted to these very toxic d- guys because they're not getting any gratification in their own life. And they're, they're turning politically to, oh, I want a strong man. I want to see the elites get punished. I didn't, I'm not getting, I'm not accomplishing anything uh, mm-hmm. that gives me satisfaction. So I want to tear other people down. I, I do think there's a direct overlap there. And I, I wonder what your view is on this, because I'm, I'm very unsympathetic to the most, of like 90% of the woke criticisms of culture, but I, I do worry about the message white men, young white men in particular are getting sometimes um, from, from broader culture. And I think that a lot of times their grievances are unfounded and, and like I kind of want to get, play the tiniest violin for them a, a little at times, but also I just think as a culture man, like we're not gonna be in a good place if, if, if these young white like, guys feel like they're second class citizens, aren't having sexual partners, aren't, you know, aren't having fulfilling work. Uh, like we're gonna end up getting Donald Trump on steroids coming around the corner.
1: Yeah, the problems you mentioned though are especially acute, not only uh, for, for young men of color, actually, uh, the, the bottom line is uh, we have a big problem and that is the sins of our father and our grandfather are being paid, the price is being paid by young men. And that is, if you look at young men, three times as likely to be addicted, four times as likely to kill themselves, 12 times as likely to be incarcerated, more single women now on homes than men. In the next five years, we're going to graduate two uh, women from college for every one man. You think, well, that's fine. They deserve it. Okay, the problem is women aren't interested in mating with men who are socioeconomically horizontally or down. They're only interested in horizontally or up. So the pool of available, viable mates for men is shrinking. And that is, you, how many times have we heard, oh, I have these great women in my life, they're smart, attractive, and they can't find a man to date. No, they can, they just they can't find a man they wanna date. And in no way should we be arresting the amazing progress and the hard earned progress that women have made. But at the same time, compassion is not a zero sum game. When you see manufacturing jobs outsourced, when you see men are biologically just have a more difficult time uh, demonstrating the behaviors that the industrial education complex wants them to demonstrate when you see that they are having trouble finding, literally the odds are so stacked against them. If they're one of the 90% of people that's not over 5'11 and doesn't make over $100,000 by the time they're 30, they get shut out in the online dating market. And because they're not going into work, they're not going to church, they're not going to the mall, they're not going to the movies, there's no environments for them to meet a potential mate. So you have, and you have skyrocketing suicidal ideation and loneliness and despair. And just because... I mean, compassion is not a zero sum game. Gay marriage didn't hurt heteronormative marriage. Civil rights didn't hurt white people. So if there was any other group that was registering the kind of real hardship this group is registering right now, I think that there would be a social and economic investments. And, and a lot of people say to me, Scott, when I talk about this, where were you for women? And I'm like, we were there for you. We had affirmative action. We had Title IX. I'm on boards of directors where we spend a lot of time trying to find and recruit and put women on our boards because we realize it's important that women have the same shot that we did and we're vastly underrepresented. We were there for non whites. So we need to be there for this group of people. And I think it's important we get away from the race based identity politics because what it really comes down to is income. And that is young men who from wealthy households are fine. They're fine. Young men from middle-class and lower-income households are just fucked right now. The, the, the gap in education, uh, educational attainment used to be, the, the primary differentiator was black versus white. It was twice as big for between black and white boys as it was between rich and poor. It's flipped now. It's twice as big between poor and rich boys as it is between black and white boys. of Harvard's freshman class is non-white, but the problem is 70% of those parents are dual parent households that make more than the average income. So all we've done is reshuffle the elites to wealthy people. So if you identify a young man who comes from a middle-class or a low-income household, I challenge you to find a group of people that are facing more dire circumstances right now. And you could, and, and then even look at- Trans folks would maybe be- Oh, fair enough. You win. Uh, Fair enough. Fair enough. That's, I think, 0.5% of the population.
0: Right, exactly.
1: This is, well, anyways, but so the question is, what are we going to do about it? And what you hear is a different nomenclature. When we talk about the issues facing non-whites and women that we say, we talk about investment, we talk about empathy. When you hear about young men and the challenges they're facing, you hear terms like accountability, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And, and you have a group of men, young men who are essentially paying for the price of my privilege. They, they, they get resentment because people look at my generation and see you had such a head start that someone who looks like you, even though they don't have the same access to inexpensive ed- education, they don't have the same access to mating opportunities, they don't have the same professional opportunity, they don't have the same bias for you that you, you had. They don't have the same incredible advantages but we're gonna take it out on them. We just don't feel, we don't feel any empathy for them. And the, the group of people who has been most receptive to my conversation around this, or when I talk about this, and I've been talking about it for 36 months, and the narrative and the tone has changed dramatically. I was called a sexist, a misogynist, you know, Andrew Tate uh, at NYU. all Jordan Peterson. Yeah, just people coming after me, it has flipped It is a much more productive conversation now. People have a lot more empathy. And the one group of people, hands down, that are most supportive of this dialogue, hands down, mothers. Um, And it goes something like this. I have three kids. My daughter's at Penn. My other daughter's in Chicago in PR. And my son's in the basement vaping and playing video games. And has no relationship prospects, few friends. Isn't even getting out of the house. Isn't working out. And I just can feel him circling the sink here. And so uh, 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 the, the... The woke narrative, if you will, or the far left, um, I find is uh, way too focused on identity politics. And I think that we should be talking about to have a productive conversation. I believe in affirmative action. I I don't think it should be gender-based. I think it should be income-based. And I think that would get to the same people without this conversation of men versus women, non-whites versus whites. But uh, on any objective standard, income, House ownership, mating opportunities, likelihood of killing themselves, obesity, whatever you want to look at, depression, young men from middle and lower income homes are doing worse than almost any group. And the question is, the whole point of a society is we make investments to help groups that are struggling. It's time we moved in and started helping this group.
0: Yeah, this is right. It's, it's nice, I think hard for people to hold two things in their head at the same time. Like, it is true that white men, mm-hmm. in particular men, are still overrepresented dramatically at the elite, in the elite environs, right? CEOs, right? Like these sorts of things, right? That doesn't do anything for the lower middle class white kid that didn't do, or black kid or whatever that didn't do well in his SATs, right? Like that's not, that's not like doing anything for them. The fact that, that, you know, middle-aged white people, that white men were better off. Agreed. Right? And I I think sometimes that's like a, a concept that I think some, some on the left struggle to, to navigate. To both of it's going things can be true. Um, I want to get, do one other thing on AI. Uh, we had Reed Hoffman on, and he made the same pitch on healthcare, and I'm totally sold on that, absolutely. And I've talked to a couple, I got a lot of doctor mm-hmm. buddies um, from college, and, and and they're very excited about it. But here's my area mm-hmm. of expertise is much narrower and much less important to society, but kind of important, which is the news and information environment that people are getting. And here is where I'm I'm really concerned about AI, and and you kind of didn't cover that. As a very high information consumer, like obsessive, my iPhone report on how much time I spend on it every mm-hmm. week is is increasingly depressing um, every time mm-hmm. I look at it. And so I, I'm consuming everything, newspapers, magazines, social media. And like I'm getting tricked sometimes already, and like the AI is not that good yet. And so, I, I, how are we going to get into a place where people get information that they know is true? Um, mm-hmm. I, I, it seems like we are exponentially. You know, th- that is already a, a problem. It was already a problem in 2016, and and it feels like we're going the wrong direction exponentially. And I just I'm wondering what your concerns are about that, and if you think there's anything we can do to arrest that.
1: Yeah, you pressed on the soft tissue of what was like a a visible gap in what I was talking about in terms of what we should be worried about. And my bad, the first major externality, I think, of AI is gonna happen in Q1 and Q2 of 2024. And that is if I'm Putin and I'm spending a hundred billion and a hundred thousand lives in what so far has been kind of a failed venture, failed war in Ukraine the fastest blue line path to victory for me is the following. I use my incredibly brilliant scientists. They have great scientists. I get a Albanian troll farm with thousands of people. I take $5 billion. And then I couple that with an amoral management team at social media firms that are there just to cash checks and then worry about what happened after the election. And I A/B AB test deepfakes and AI to deposition whoever is Trump's opponent and I get Trump reelected. Because the cheapest way for Putin to win the war in Ukraine is to get Trump reelected. Trump's reelected, he's won the war. So what would you do? He'd be stupid not to. I'm China and I have my adversary, my only competitor for the biggest economy in the world is the US. I can't beat them kinetically. I don't have the military power. I can't send a carrier squadron into the Gulf uh, the, you know, in the Middle East. I have two bases offshore, they have 112. I can't beat them economically. Something about the water and the West Coast, they just keep coming up with the best shit. Uh, they have better universities. Democracy seems to be mostly working for them.
0: Free market capitalism <laughs> is also kind of a plus.
1: There you go. You know, I'm going to turn them into a horror movie with a calls coming from inside of the house. How do you defeat an enemy? You atomize them. I'm going to get them hating each other. So I'm going to create this social media platform that I have influence or control over, and I'm going to AI test... All sorts of content, and I'm just going to divide them. And I I recognize this sounds paranoid, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. I think we're going to find in the fullness of time that the CCP very elegantly, insidiously put its thumb on the scale of pro Hamas content for younger people, knowing it would divide them from an older generation. People my age are 70% pro Israel, people under the age of 25 are 20%. And by the way, I think if we were pro Hamas at my age, they would be promoting pro Israel content. I think they're Issue is to just sow division. Because why wouldn't they raise a generation of American civic, nonprofit, business, and government leaders that just feel a little bit shittier about America every day? That's what I would do. That, and by the way, that's what we did through the 20th century. We used all sorts of propaganda, radio for Europe. We have an entire division of the army whose stated mission is to develop psychological influence across using media channels. They now have a neural jack implanted into into every youth who spend more time on TikTok than every other streaming media combined. They would be stupid not to create division. I mean, we can't get bills passed because we can't get a a Speaker of the House that controls his party. We are fighting each other internally. We're putting up posters of missing people and then other people are tearing them down. We're putting up flags for Veterans Day and then people are climbing the post and taking the flags down. That younger generation, is really like uh, the, the, the 50% gap in pro-Israel sentiment is much greater than the generational gap on Vietnam or 9-11, name, name it, it's never been 50 points. So I think that AI deep fakes, I mean, I'll give you just a tiny example. If I were Putin and I wanted Trump elected, I would just use AI to make Biden just very incrementally seem a little bit older. You know, he shuffles now, we'll make him shuffle a little bit more. He picks the wrong word or pauses a little bit, we'll use AI just to dial it up a little bit, a little bit. And with his vice president, she has a tendency to sound a little bit awkward sometimes or just tone deaf. Let's figure out a million different iterations of that that just make her sound a little bit worse every day. They would be, in my opinion, they'd be stupid not to be doing this. That's what we would do. That's what we would do. So AI. Generated content that depositions whoever the Democratic nominee is, is, in my opinion, going to be the first. It's going to be an AI driven misinformation or disinformation lollapalooza starting Q1 and Q2 of next year.
0: Um, What are we going to do? I mean, is there anything to to be done about it? Where are you on the TikTok question? Like, should we be banning TikTok? It goes against all of my old free market principles to be like, we should ban this social media site. But on the other hand, I don't know if what you're saying is true. You don't, we don't know if, if the CCP is, a, is actually, you know, putting their thumb on the scale. But that doesn't seem like a crazy conspiracy theory to think that that's possible. I, I mean, anybody who has, you know, that's done any analysis looking at the TikTok for you page and just like creating a blank account and starting to look for Israel stuff like quickly gets sent down a path. And maybe that's just because there's more engagement on anti-Israel stuff. And I, I don't, you know, it is no, nothing nefarious, but what can be done about it?
1: Well, first off, something's going on. If you're on Reels for 10 minutes and you're on TikTok for 10 minutes, I'm the same person. I would challenge anyone to do this. On Reels, I get a lot of pro-Israel content and on TikTok, I get a lot of pro-Hamas content. Now you might say, well, maybe, maybe it's Meta that's manipulating the algorithm." But so, There is a huge difference between the two and I would ask anybody to nullify or validate that thesis uh, for yourself. In terms of what can be done, the question I would present to you is a free speech person, I think of myself as being a, pretty much, you know, an endorser. Uh, I, I think a democratic society is mostly measured by one of the key measures is pretty much anyone can say pretty much anything about pretty much anybody. Right. And even when I see, I'm just, my ter- stomach turns when I see these NYU students pulling posters down, I'm like, well, okay, but if someone put them up and it's not public property and they were expressing free speech and they take them down, can I, you know, I, I really struggle with this. Right. What I would ask you is, And it's effectively the same thing. If the CCP had influence and it was, and the Chinese owned Apple TV+, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime Video, ABC, CBS, and NBC, if they owned all of those networks, would you be down with that? Would you think that's a problem? We should be careful that it's owned by the Chinese and the CCP, because that's effectively what you have with TikTok. People my generation don't realize how dominant it is among, when asked if they'd rather have TikTok or every other streaming video media platform, two thirds of people under the age of 25 chose TikTok. And when I see my 13 year old, if I were to give him anything for his birthday, he would say, let me put on diapers, go upstairs, so I don't have to take bathroom breaks, sit on my side and watch TikTok until I pass out and maybe hook up an IV to me so I get some nutrients and a catheter so I don't need to pee. (laughs) And just let me watch TikTok until I come to near death and then come up and bring me some food. This thing is the opium, whatever it was, the 17th century or, you know. And what I'd like to see is we threaten to ban it, we get serious about it, and then they spin it to non-Chinese interests. I mean, the asymmetry here is dramatic. Do you think they would let us get anywhere near an American media platform that controlled... Two percent of the population, much less ninety percent, had penetration across ninety percent of our youth. There's no way they would let us do this. So I'd like to see it spun. And by the way, I think the people, the Chinese people, who uh, investors, and I'd like to see them all magnificently rich. I think they've created an incredible platform. But it is, in my opinion, when we don't control the data and the data is not the algorithm is not protected and ring fenced by U.S. interests, I just think it's too big a security threat. And Uh, So, yeah, I would say ban it and hopefully the day before we actually ban it because they think we're a cat chasing a red dot and we'll get distracted and they're mostly right. I think they would spin it and say, we're not going to give up a half a trillion dollars. Uh, So, I think we do have to ban it unless they spin it.
0: Um, I appreciate your view there on free speech, like actually grappling with it. I hate the, the, the far right, the free speech folks on the right that are now like they're trying to not anymore the columbia kids (laughs) like i literally like i saw i saw multiple i saw somebody whose book who literally wrote a book called end of discussion about the problem of free speech on campus tweeting approvingly today about banning the columbia
1: look at desantis he wants fsu to to expel kids who show up at uh, Pro-Palestinian rallies. Yeah. Or take, and
0: take visas away from kids. And the whole the thing is, I'm yeah. very authoritarian. And, uh, what, on the kid, on the 13-year-old, I've got a five-year-old. So I don't have to address this yet. What For is sure. your TikTok policy?
1: Oh, I, I want to be clear. I don't think we've got it figured out. Um, our policies around this stuff are, I, we're not smart enough to police their the apps they have. What we do is we demand access to their accounts so we can see what's going on. We don't let them go into their room with their phone alone, especially at night Uh, because I think that's where they can go down a rabbit hole that's very upsetting. I think it's worse for girls than it is for boys. My boys, they tend to be more into video games. We try and limit their time. We're trying to put them all on the same, we're trying to all get on the same telco plan such that we can limit their time, but we haven't got it figured out. My son struggled with device addiction during COVID, crept up on us. You'd think I would recognize this, crept up on us, and all of a sudden it was like, uh, he literally was addicted to this thing and became a mess. So. Anyone who thinks they have their screen stuff figured out with their kid, that means they don't have kids. If we look back on this era, and I think in 10 or 20 years, when we look back on this era of big tech, Tim, I think we're gonna regret the monopolization or the monopoly abuse, the weaponization of elections, the the making our discourse more coarse. But I think by far our biggest regret, I think we're gonna look back on this era and think, how the fuck did we let this happen to our kids? Uh, It's just, all the data around teen suicide, self-esteem, young girls eating disorders, radicalization of young men. And it's not just it's not just meta, it's Google, it's YouTube. Christ, it's even Pinterest sending out emails to 14 year old British girls saying, who have expressed an interest in suicide saying, here are some images we thought you might find interesting. And they send them images of nooses, razor blades, and pills. It's just, it, we're gonna look back and go, how on earth, wh- why on earth are we not age-gating social media? We age-gate cigarettes, porn, the military, alcohol, but we've decided to let a 13-year-old on Snap or on Instagram, it just makes no sense.
0: Yeah. Um, Hard to argue with that. You did mention one topic that we have a disagreement on in there, and so I want to give you a chance to win me over. Sure. I'm not sold on the the antitrust monopoly power, and I think that the last year of of Elon's taking over of Twitter has kind of proven my side, given some ammunition to my side. I mean, we have an unbelievable amount of new social media outlet proliferation. Now, they're not all as big as other ones, but Donald Trump has a social media outlet now. There's Blue Sky just spun off another one. You know, Snap actually persistently doing okay, right? I mean, it's not, it hasn't become one of the big ones, but there's still daily active users. I have a Snap show that gets six-figure views a week, so kids are still on there. I just don't see it. I, to me, it doesn't feel like we do have a monopoly issue. I think there are other issues with those companies, but I don't think it's an antitrust issue.
1: Sure. So well, let's. And by the way, a lot of smart people uh, have the exact same view you do. But let's talk about social media. What is the market share of Meta and social media?
0: Like in ads, you mean, or in traffic, or
1: no total usage, total time, uh, the percentage of time spent on a Meta property as as a percentage of all social media time.
0: I don't know, sixty percent.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, you're, it's like it's somewhere between sixty-three and sixty-seven. Um, Isn't that Coke?
0: Coke? Well, Coke I Coke. describe
1: that. I describe that as a monopoly, and and people the the test for whether something is a monopoly and should have antitrust enforcement is the Bork test, and that is are is are they using their monopoly power to raise prices, and it's difficult to apply that test because it's a free product. But what I would argue is that we're paying all sorts of non-economic costs, and that is as is your five-year-old a boy or a girl? Girl. So I would argue she's very ripe for this type of bullshit, abuse, lack of concern for her well-being at the hands of Meta, and that if there were four companies, each with somewhere between 10 and 30% share, one of them would raise their hand and say, hey, P&G, we're going to age-gate this. We're going to spend a shit ton of money trying to figure out what content should be not allowed on the platform. And right now, advertisers have no choice. If you're a small business, you have to be on Meta. I'm on Meta, I can't stand the company, I'm on it. If I wanna build a podcast or a business or an ed tech firm, I have to be on Meta. So I believe we're increasingly, I don't think YouTube has a real desire or a real urgent need to stop content that radicalizes young men because they pretty much dominate online social video. Now, the question is, well, all right, Scott, aren't you just tasking them with an impossible task? Cause they'll say, this is just a representation of the internet, we can't control this stuff. When we remove sex trafficking from 230 protection, all sex trafficking, pretty much all sex trafficking content went away the next day. When we kicked one guy off of Twitter, Donald Trump, something like 40 to 60% of election misinformation went away the next day. Yeah. If we were to remove 230 protection, and this, is anti- this isn't antitrust, it's regulation, but if we were to remove 230 protection from these guys around say ai elevated content health related content anything regarding teens anything regarding suicidal ideation i think we would be shocked how fast they would clean this shit up and then just as a capitalist i love antitrust my largest holdings are amazon and apple i believe if those companies get broken up i'm going to make more money and if you look at the history of antitrust the biggest one being at&t or the most recent one when at&t was divided into seven Bells. Each of those seven companies was worth more than the original AT&T within 10 years because we found that fiber optics, cell, data were all hidden within Bell Labs who didn't want to ruin this monopoly they had on long-distance lines, where right? I used to go into my dad's office to call my mom because he had a, something called a, a Watts line. And what do you know, AI, open AI shows up, and it ends up all of this AI that was, was actually invented at Google has kind of been lying fallow because they're like, before you go too hard at the AI, make sure it doesn't fuck with our core business called Search. Right. So one, who benefits from antitrust? I think consumers benefit. I don't think that we're gonna have a lack of innovation. I think investors benefit. I think employees benefit because there's more people trying to rent their time. I think shareholders benefit. The only people that don't benefit from antitrust throughout history from breakups are the person sitting on the iron throne with dual class super voting majority shares that decide, you know what, I like running a much bigger company. I mean, what would WhatsApp be worth if they spun it? What would Instagram be worth? Do any sort of bottoms up analysis of these companies broken up and you end up, in my opinion, with more innovation, more competition and more money. And so I'm a fan of antitrust. I also think we need regulation. I think these companies have gone way too powerful. Also, the ecosystem has become unhealthy. If you look at, you know, everyone's like, oh, NASDAQ had its best first half in 40 years. No, it didn't. Seven companies had their best first half. If you didn't own one of seven companies, you actually vastly underperform the market. If you look, if you divide the market stocks into deciles from the most valuable 10 companies with the largest 10% of companies that have the largest market cap, all the gains are going to the top 10%. That makes for my opinion, an unhealthy ecosystem. There's just, it's harder and harder to get out of the crib. So we have a proud legacy of antitrust. It's not right in every situation, but oh my gosh. A break! Th- I own these stocks, break them up so we can make some real money.
0: De- decently compelling. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep marinating on that. Um, you've, you've, moved, you've moved me an inch. Two other things we have slight disagreements on, then I'm gonna let you go. Sure. Um, I've, you've been a big Airbnb evangelist too, is that that's right?
1: I, it's one of my biggest holdings. I like, I like the CEO a lot and I bought it purely as kind of what I will call a capitalist in the sense that it dominates the sector. I think it's a great company. It's a strong brand. I think it's the strongest brand, I think I would argue, in the history of hospitality. It's the only one that's a verm. No one says I got a Four Seasons in Detroit. <laughs> I know where you're going with this, though, and I think you're probably right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now we're on the flip side. I was like, because now okay. I want government intervention because I yeah. live in New Orleans, and I I feel like the h- housing prices on everybody in New Orleans is up probably. I don't, you know I'm not a real estate specialist, but five percent, eight percent, I don't know, because of the proliferation of Airbnbs I, and their entire neighborhoods with houses that 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 are that are second homes, Airbnb homes, people that have three, four, five of these things. I shouldn't there be some limits on these guys?
1: The, when I look at the prices of it, when I look at the cost of education, the cost of housing on people your age, we got to do something. <laughs> I mean, the, the reality is incomes in the last 50 years have gone up sixfold. Housing, education, healthcare have all gone up like 10 to 20 fold. I mean, it's just, we got to do something. The, the, for the first time in history, a 30 year old isn't doing as well as his or her parents at 30, and housing's a big part of that. And I don't think, that, I, I just don't think you can argue with a straight face that Airbnb doesn't take rental costs up. You just take stuff out of the ecosystem, there's less supply, costs are gonna go up. Now, the only argument you can make is that it's a transfer of wealth from people looking for from renters to travelers. Because now, if you're a nomad and you wanna live in different areas and you wanna work remotely, you have more options, It's you have more liquidity, more fluidity, and kind of it's more economically doable if you say, all right, I'm gonna take my family on the road and I'm gonna live in Pittsburgh for six months and I wanna live in Colorado for three months. You could make the argument that it's a transfer of wealth and economic power from renters to quote unquote a nomadic or travelers. Having said that, Tim, I think you're right on this one. I, I don't I get it. When New York says we gotta limit the number of Airbnbs or you just can't, we gotta we gotta get these people out of the business of finding the six best apartments on the Lower East Side and renting them all and then airbnb them out. I get it. I get it.
0: Um, Podcasting is always more fun when you have some disagreements than agreements. So I do want to say, uh, I was, as I was listening to some of your other pods, we don't have time to get into this now, but one of your most compelling ideas that I hadn't even considered on the supply and demand side was what you just kind of referenced on Colleges and how these guys should have like you know, I think your line was that Harvard is letting in fifteen hundred people. They should be letting in fifteen thousand, and that hadn't even occurred to me that that should be something we should be pushing for on change. And that's absolutely one hundred percent right. So
1: anyway. I appreciate that. And just for the rant, we have a misdirect. We argue about who should get in. I can solve all these problems. It's not who, it's how many. And when you sit on the GDP of Costa Rica and you're only letting in five percent of your applicants. And the director of admissions says we could have let in three times as many with no sacrifice in quality. Then the answer is, well, why wouldn't you, boss? And if they don't grow their freshman seats faster than population, they should lose their nonprofit status. It is morally corrupt. When I applied to UCLA, the admissions rate was 76%. Now it's 9%. And let me just flex here. I gave $15 million to UCLA last year. So guess what? Them taking a chance on a really mediocre kid, and I'm, I'm not humble bragging, I was, I was distinctly right. <laughs> mediocre. It pays off for everyone, because here's the thing, no organization, especially a college, can predict greatness at the age of 18. I was a total fuck up at 18, and I got my shit together, and because I got my shit together with the benefit of the certification of a degree from UCLA and Berkeley, it's paid off for everyone. So this isn't about who gets in, it's about more. We need more blacks, we need more whites, we need more trans kids, we need more white kids, we need more Republicans. We need a massive increase in freshman seats. Instead of that $750 billion giveaway to student loan borrowers, which I empathize with, but quite frankly, two thirds of America shouldn't have to pay for the one third that went to school. You could have said to our hundred biggest Public institutions, we're going to give you up to seven or eight billion dollars over the next 10 years. You can use technology and infrastructure to expand your freshman class by 6% a year while lowering prices 2 to 3% a year through deft use of technology. Where does that get us in 10 years? Double the freshman seats at half the price. We've done this before. Let's go back. College should be a place for the lower 90. You know who doesn't need college? The top 10%. They have the connections, the academic excellence already. It's the bottom 90 that needs It needs a college. We need to fall back in love with the unremarkables. Colleges have lost the script. Me and my colleagues have decided we're no longer public servants, but a fucking Chanel bag. It needs to stop.
0: Uh, major snaps on that rant. We could have done another hour. You, you did an interview with Dean Phillips, so I want, I want one sentence on this, and I have a one-sentence investment advice. I have no hope for Dean Phillips, and I think it's kind of preposterous, but I saw you send a nice thread about it. So give us one sentence or two on, on the Dean Phillips interview.
1: I just think we need more candidates for the Democratic nomination. Uh, and I hope he inspires that. I, I don't...
0: Just based on age, the age issue.
1: Any D under the age of 80 right now, I think, deserves a hard look. I, I'm just praying. I think we're playing not to lose on the Democratic side, which means we're going to lose. I, I think it's insane that we're going to nominate somebody who's going to be 86 the last time Marine One leave, leaves the West Lawn. People accuse me of being an ageist. I am. You know who else is ageist? Biology. It's fucking ridiculous that we're going to nominate someone who's going to be 86.
0: Um. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that in principle, but I, I think it might be the best of bad options. But we could do another full podcast agreed. on that. Yeah, I agreed. Agreed. Um, agreed. Okay, my final thing is, you know, I have you here, and this is your expertise. So I'm staring at impossible foods options next year in my family. Do we, do we have any hope in the fake meat business? Or is the, the beyond beyond meat has gone from like 120 down to like two cents. So I don't really have much hope in the fake meat industry. But I was hoping you could give me some hope.
1: Oh, no, it, it's, it, it's going to be an industry, a viable industry. It's just not going to be worth nearly what we thought it was going to be worth. I mean, crypto is <laughs> going to survive. It's just going to be a small market. And that's the same thing with alternative. Uh, these companies got so far out over their skis. It's like what you said, holding to thought. Is, is alternative beef or whatever you want to call this sustainable and important? Yes. Were these companies... N- Massively overvalued. Yes.
0: Okay. Well, good. Maybe I'll get a couple months' mortgage out of that then. You know, not 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 <laughs> what my dreams were, but uh, you know, maybe something's better than nothing. Prof G, dude, this has been awesome. We I literally could have done three hours. Thank you so much. Uh, people should go check out your podcast and newsletters and everything else if you haven't. And, and thanks for checking us out at the Bulwark, And hopefully you can do this again sometime.
1: Tim, congrats on your success. And I, I really I enjoy your voice. You're reasonable and. Us raging moderates have to stick together. So keep we on do. keeping on, brother. We Congrats. do. Congrats.
0: Back at you, brother. Say hi to Kara for Love us. It. We'll talk to you later. Take care.